0: Sometimes I think you know you get to a skills level where you just make assumptions that you can handle almost anything, and then you know. But you know, sometimes I mean, if, if a boulder peels off a mountain and crushes you, there's not a whole lot you can do about that.
1: Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Uh, today's throwback episode goes back to 2018 when Kurt was hosting the show, uh, and we're talking to Jane Parnell about climbing mountains and how, how mountaineering specifically and how mountains can heal us. I know so many of us find refuge in the outdoors. I know for me, just literally going outside and sitting in grass or in some trees, just does me so much good. And being out there in the wilderness does just that much more uh, for me, for my soul, for my mind. Uh, we need it. Whether you realize it or not, we need to be out there. And so for for Jane, she realized it after a, a pretty horrific um, tragedy in her life. I, I, If you are sensitive to this at all, I, I just want to warn you, uh, this episode does talk about rape a few times. Uh, Jane was unfortunately... A victim of that early in her life. And it wasn't just that that was traumatizing. It was the fact that very few people believed her. Um, there was subsequent traumas that, that happened as well. And she has used and found refuge in the mountains uh, ever since. And I know that if that's a place she can find peace, that's a place that I, and I'm sure you can find peace as well, So I just wanted to tell you before we get into it that that, there, there will be that discussion in the episode. She wrote a book about this experience and about how she has wanted to climb uh, the for, you know, she started climbing mountains and and realized she was getting close to the first hundred peaks, the highest hundred in Colorado and decided to go for it. And then all of a sudden, the next thing, you know, she's getting really close to 200 and then 300. And so she decided, like I said, to write a book about this called Off Trail, finding my way home in the Colorado mountains and if you're interested in checking that out we have a link in the show notes Um, but without further ado I'll let her tell her story if you if this is your first time thank you for listening we've got a lot of episodes as you can see and uh yeah welcome to the adventure sports podcast all right here's Jane's story
2: My friends, today the show is about mountaineering, but not just mountaineering. It's about using the mountains to grow, to heal for a lifetime. Today's guest is Jane Parnell, and Jane has climbed nearly all 300 of the highest peaks in Colorado. That means she did the 14ers. She did the centennials. She did the top 200s and has almost finished the 300s. And she did it For reasons that really tell an amazing story, I'm excited to have Jane with us today. And you can hear the whole story because she wrote a book about it. The book is called Off Trail, Finding My Way Home in the Colorado Rockies. Jane, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. You bet. So, Jane, you have an amazing story to tell, and I think we're kindred spirits. You and I both love the Colorado Rockies so much. And so I'm really looking forward to our visit today, just because this is one of my favorite topics. So all of you who are mountaineers out there, listen up. And if you're not mountaineers, but you're curious about what it's like, listen up. And if you have no intention of ever getting on a mountain, there's still a lot of human story here that I think you will find inspirational and valuable for your own life. So Jane, let's start with a little bit of the background. Um, You were 21 years old when a tragedy struck your life, and part of the end result of that was that you turned to the mountains for healing. Will you share with us what that's about?
0: Yeah, shortly after graduating from college, this would have been in the early 1970s, a soldier at Fort Carson near Colorado Springs, he was a Vietnam vet. I didn't know him, but um, he broke in... To my cottage in the middle of the night and raped me at knife point oh
3: no and in those
0: days, law enforcement rarely believed women who were raped. You had to be shot or knifed or you know to prove that something had happened to you that you'd fought and so my um experience was quite typical. I was not believed um they would not take it seriously. So it was a very traumatic experience because I knew this man was going to go on and rape other women, and he did. Mm. Um, and I had an equally bad experience at the hospital um, where the doctor allowed a bunch of orderlies in the, in the room where I was examined, and um, they cracked jokes about it. And It was just the whole thing was very traumatic. So between that experience... And uh, my only sibling, my older sister, Alice, being diagnosed at 19 with schizophrenia, I I definitely had some challenges, some really big emotional challenges getting over those things. So when I met uh, the man who became my husband for 15 years, Carl, he was a mountaineer. And part of my interest in him was, was the fact that he was a mountaineer he introduced me to the idea of climbing colorado's 54 fourteeners and he was very accomplished and a good person to learn from and i i soon discovered despite my inexperience and a lot of pain in the early years of my hiking that the mountains were a source of solace and transformation
2: wow and so this was in the 70s when this started up?
0: Yeah. It, I, well, I started, yeah, I, started, I think I maybe, uh, maybe 1975, in in that ballpark, 76, when I started mountaineering with Carl, and also the Colorado Mountain Club. We, we were both, we both joined the Colorado Mountain Club.
2: Well, I first of all, I'm sorry to hear about the tragedy that struck your life, and it's not uncommon People have tragedies in life, and I think it's more common than not that we all have things to work through. What I'm really curious about is how mountaineering, climbing Colorado's high peaks, how that provided the healing and instruction you were looking for.
0: Well, swimming wasn't the only thing that helped me heal, but it was a big part of it. And the part of it that it played was it enabled me to... Regain faith in my body it's very common for for rape victims to feel like their body has betrayed them mm. and 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 so a lot of victims feel very conflicted about their bodies after something like that Now this is true for me and mountaineering it was you know you have to be physically strong i wasn't obviously in the beginning but as time went on i became more and more competent and that really restored my faith in my body so that i could enjoy it again and appreciate it again that was one part of it another part of it was just the beauty of being in the outdoors what it's like to hike through all these different ecosystems, make it to the summit, and look at over millions of years of the history of the Earth right at your feet in every direction. And it enlarged my perspective so that I could see that my experience was, you know, one little tiny piece of human history and that I was part of a continuum And that put everything in perspective for me.
2: Yeah, I can see that. Definitely. You know, it's uh when you stand on one of those high peaks and you're looking at a view like you were describing, the grandeur of it. I I sometimes I think it's just the right scale. Because when we look up at the stars we're seeing something far, far, far bigger. But we don't really connect with that. But when you climb a mountain then you've been a part of the experience. You feel the size of the mountain. You know the effort required. The wind is in your face, the weather, the sun, whatever's going on. You really experience it. And then when you stand on that peak, you see that vast view across these amazing mountains. It's humbling, but I think it also helps us to understand our place in the the bigger order of things. I
0: couldn't agree more.
2: I just, I, I, mountaineering is so healing. And what's also interesting about it, I think, and maybe you'll agree with this too, is that it takes a lot of time to climb a peak. And that's time when you're not distracted by everyday life. That's time when you're walking through beauty, and you're working with your body. And so that gives you time to think, time to consider, time to slow down on the inside. I think that's also very important.
0: Yeah, it uh, it's almost it, it can be almost a Zen like experience. I write about that in the book, um, you know that quality of the experience, and it it really it, at least for me engages me in the present, right here, right now. What's underneath my feet? What's right in front of me?
2: Hmm, that's neat. So let's for people that have never climbed a mountain. Will you describe for us what it's like, kind of from start to finish, to just climb kind of an average big peak?
0: Well, it's interesting. I mean, I'm in my late 60s now, and I had my knee replaced in May, so I I don't hike. I I won't be able to hike as I did before, but... um, I guess I would divide it into phases. Um, My first three summers, it was very arduous, very difficult. I was in pain a lot of the time. But what kept me going was the reward on the summit. And even if you don't make the summit, I mean, the animals that you're seeing, the, the plants, being out in nature, and realizing that you're how interdependent we are. And um, so that kind of compensates for the difficulty of it, the physical difficulty and discomfort of it. But once that hurdle is crossed, then it, it um, then it can be quite pleasurable, the physical sensations, because your body, you know, your body is up to it. Your body, you know, you've got the muscles for it. You've got the lung power for it. And then I I recall a stage in my forties and early fifties when I could just fly up a mountain without even thinking about it hardly. And those days are long over. So but now um it's very much a spiritual experience for me. And you know, I can't do the distances, the elevation gains or mileage that I used to or uh, anything very technical. But um it's still it's still an incredible, incredibly worthwhile experience.
2: Oh, yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. I think it's just delightful. So I'm not going to ask you what your favorite peak is because that's too hard to figure out, but could you tell us what one of your favorites might be or maybe a couple of your favorite peaks in Colorado? Oh,
0: there's so many. I, I, I tend to approach each mountain on its own terms You know, what does it have to teach me? What does it have to offer me? And it seems like, well, I think more in terms of mountain ranges than individual peaks. They all have such distinctive histories geologically and personalities. And I value each of them for different reasons. Um, I think the views, uh, there's several peaks south of Silverton that you can hike out to And you're overlooking uh, the Grenadiers, which is one of the most rugged rugged sections of one of the most rugged mountain ranges in Colorado. And the views from there are just unbelievable. And you don't see any towns. You don't see any highways. Whereas in the Front Range, on the eastern slope, you're much more likely to see signs of human civilization.
2: So you're talking about the mountains that are inside of the Wimanuchi Wilderness Area, then?
0: Uh yeah. Mm-hmm. They they would be between well, they'd be between Silverton and Durango. Yeah.
2: Wow. What a beautiful part of the state that is. So we're talking about the San Juan's, right? But
0: mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, the biggest mountain range in Colorado.
2: Nice. I find that every mountain has its own story to tell, and if I take the time to remember a climb, it's just like anybody that you meet. Every person is unique. Each person is an individual, and I find that each mountain is unique and has its own personality, and even each day on each mountain can be unique um, because you have a different experience. And I'm like you. It would be terribly difficult for me to tell someone what one of my favorite mountains might be, you know? Yeah. It might be easier, though, to tell us just an amazing story about an experience you had climbing. Well, uh, let,
0: me, let me think a minute about that. Yeah. Um... I think um, no matter what peak it is, I'm always very aware of the history that I'm looking at and in my tiny little place in time and space. (laughs) Um, Well, uh, there was a peak that I really enjoyed. I mean, most of the peaks I climbed in recent years before my knee surgery are unnamed low 13ers that hardly ever get climbed, maybe once or twice a year, if that. And I love those peaks because I don't see other people. And it gives me a different perspective on the mountains, on the Colorado Rockies, because I'm at a lower altitude. You know, on the 14ers, you're looking down on everything. You're above everything. On some of the lower 13ers, you're positioned lower down, so you don't get the expanse of a view. But you do get wonderful perspectives on mountains that you've climbed before, and you're seeing them from different positions. And I always appreciate that, because I realize every mountain has can be looked at in such different ways.
2: Yeah, that's true.
3: And I, I
0: never really get to know a mountain. Um, I mean, climbing at once... It's one thing to climb it once, another thing to climb every peak around it and look at it from every conceivable angle.
2: Yeah, that's funny. That happened to me just this winter. I climbed Boulder Mountain, which is 13.5 behind Entero, just west of Entero. So you would know where that is. I'm sure you've climbed it.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, Yeah, I'm I'm sure I have. (laughs) I got to the top of that peak, and I looked to the south, and I saw a peak, and for the life of me, I couldn't figure out what it was. And I was surprised because it was Tabagwatch, which I had climbed previously, but from the viewpoint of Boulder Mountain, it looked completely different. So it's just kind of an example mm-hmm. of what you're talking
3: about.
0: Yeah, it's, it's almost unrecognizable, I and mean, then you're, you're, you're getting to know it in a different way. And, and that's another thing that I think is very interesting about doing the lower 13 years, because I actually probably have done at least... 400 of the 13ers, maybe 450, I don't know. And I won't finish them now, not with my arthritis and so on, but it doesn't matter. But um, the other interesting thing about doing the 13ers is, well, in any mountain, I'm looking around and I'm going, if I climb that one, if I climb that one, and then I'm, I want to know, you know, oh, I haven't climbed that mountain yet, I'd like to do that someday. So it's a way to discover more country.
2: Oh, it is. And I have this experience, I'm sure you do, too, that I get to the top of a a peak and I start looking around at all the other peaks and it just turns into, oh, I want to do that. I want to do that. I want to do that. (laughs) And it's amazing when you get up there. I mean, you've climbed so many more mountains than I have, but when you get up there, it's just all the other peaks begin to call to me.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. it's, It's almost trivial to someone who's never climbed what we're talking about. They're thinking, what? I don't get it. But once you've been there and, and you've tasted of what mountaineering is about, and then you, you get that kind of a, an excitement about it, you know. and when you see those peaks, it, there's something big there. So for the mountaineers, they know exactly what we're talking about, and they're saying, yeah, I get it. And that's part of the value of the sport, isn't it? It's just so vast.
0: Yeah, it's endless, and of course, if you don't confine yourself to Colorado, you could spend a hundred lifetimes doing it, and I did get out of Colorado, I mean, I have, you know, climbed elsewhere, and, and also out of the country, not as often as I wished, but I did get to do it, but it, it's just endless, and then every valley you look into, there's, you know, there's lakes, there's more valleys, and it's not just the mountains, it's all the other things around them.
2: Oh, yeah, such natural beauty. Yeah, that's it. You're absolutely right. Those are some, just a few of the rewards of mountaineering. You already mentioned another one inadvertently, and that was that when you started, it was really, really tough, but over time, you got very strong, and they became easier. I got very
0: strong. Yeah, and I ended up doing 30 or 40 solos. I wouldn't do that now, especially after that close call I had in 2007, but, you know, that. That's how confident I felt and, and how strong I was
2: well, tell us about what happened in two thousand seven
0: well i was I was climbing an unnamed peak. I love unnamed peaks <laughs> because they they haven't they don't have as strong an imprint from humans they haven't even been named, and there's something very magical about that to me but i was it was an unnamed peak near Vaderhorn which is a 14er in the in, uh, Edge, And it gets climbed maybe once or twice a summer, and I was with two friends. And there was just one challenging part towards the end as you you know make the summit ridge, and that went well. We made the summit, we were coming back, and then we got down out off the chimney, very rotten, loose rock with a lot of exposure, so had to pick our way carefully. And once I was off of that, I was crossing a boulder field. that was fairly level, and it looked pretty innocuous. I'd hiked across dozens and dozens and dozens of boulder fields and never had a problem. But the group had gotten spread apart. My friend, uh, one friend, a woman friend of mine from Salt Lake was way ahead, and the other friend from Colorado uh, was way behind. And so I was, no one could see me at that point and a a very large one-and-a-half-ton boulder tipped over and caught my leg. It it, it crushed between my knee and my ankle, my right leg, my calf, between Mm. it and the boulder underneath, and I couldn't move a muscle. I had never experienced that kind of pain before because my leg was being crushed, and so I was screaming at the top of my lungs for help. And they finally, you know, they finally heard me and came, uh, the woman was very small and lightweight. She couldn't really do anything except comfort me. The man ha- happened to be um, a wrestler in college years ago because even the two of them pushing, me pushing, when I wasn't just collapsing on my back in exhaustion and pain, couldn't move it one iota. Wow. And so he squatted. he squatted as if he were in a wrestling match. And it was an opponent. And somehow he managed to leverage it with his chest and his arms out of that position so that he could just shift it slightly so that they were able to drag my leg out from underneath the boulder. And to my amazement, when I rolled up my pant leg, there was no bone sticking out. I thought for sure I had a compound fracture. Right. But I didn't. I mean, the leg was extremely swollen and bloody and cut and, you know, just, it, it really looked like a, a mutation of of my original calf. And um, to my surprise and delight, I felt no pain at that moment. From then on, I could feel, I mean, I had I couldn't feel anything in that leg. And so they got me up on my leg down to a snow field about 100 feet below, and we packed my leg in a jacket Uh, full of snow, because the swelling was just getting worse and worse. It looked like my leg was going to rupture. And we had about three and a half miles and, I don't know, 2,500, 2,800 feet to go. It took a long time, and I used their shoulders as crutches. But we got to the car just as the sun was going down. And then we drove into Lake City, and just as we arrived at the clinic, they were just about to close it. Oh. So I was very lucky. <laughs> I mean, we got off the mountain before dark, and we got to the clinic just as they were closing it. And, um, you know, there really wasn't much they could do for me, but um, they just suggested that I go see an orthopedist in Gunnison the next morning. So that night I had a long night with my leg up on a sleeping bag, keeping it elevated and trying to ice it. But when you're camping, very difficult to tend to an injury like that. But I did have a crush injury, and um, I, I might have had a hairline fracture. They they didn't do an MRI, but, but it was about two months of recovery from that, you know, being on a walker for weeks and then a cane and so on. And I still, to this day, have a large dent in my calf where the calf is, you know, there's, there's a hole in the calf where that muscle and all the other soft tissues around it will never come back. Wow.
2: So I have to ask, I mean, first of all, what a, what a scary experience. And that's, that's part of the risk that we take when we go into the backcountry. You don't have to be mountain climbing for that either. But I have no. to ask, as you look back on it, was it worth that injury for the experiences that you've had?
0: Oh, I would say so. I mean, if I ended up like that fellow—I forget his name—and you, you know, who was canyoneering in Utah and had to cut his arm off—if yeah. I ended up like that, I probably would have some regrets. But it didn't really. Um, I mean, I I started climbing within two months of that accident, just little peaks, and I've, I've had chronic tendonitis in that leg and other problems as a result, but. It could have been so much worse that it really didn't, um, I never really second-guessed anything.
1: Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that helped make this show possible.
2: That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. How many, just to estimate, how many times do you think that maybe you had a close call where there was no injury, but something happened? that you somehow just escaped?
0: Well, um, I can think of two times. Um, One was on Dallas Peak, which was, for me, the scariest of the 100 highest. It hadn't been climbed very often, and so we were kind of trying to figure out the route as we went. This was our second attempt. And on the way down... I think I was just exhausted, probably, or dehydrated, or something, because I turned upside down on the rappel, and I was, I'm looking down 2,500 feet at blue lakes and going, "Oh God, <laughs> what am I going to do now?" <laughs> um, and then my, and then my, I was still married at the time to Carl, and I was yelling up at him, and he was kind of instructing me how to get out of that situation. And I finally uprighted myself, and then I got down that chimney and then across the ledge, and as I was untying, oh, I was. I was untying, and I was untying from the rope, and and the fellow who was climbing with us, he did a lot of peaks with us in those years, and he was standing um, on the other side of this tiny, maybe a couple feet worth of snow. I stepped on the snow, and it gave way, and my foot went all the way through, and I realized that I was about to be launched into you know, 2,500 feet of space. Wow. And he, grabbed, and he grabbed me. So if he hadn't been there, that would have been probably the end.
3: Mm.
0: So I was very, very grateful to him. And um, another time, I was hiking with two friends, again in the San Juans. I don't know what is it about the San Juans well, the rock for one thing, very, very hot day, you know, in the mid-80s, which is very hot for those altitudes. Right. And, and I was hiking with two people and my dog took off and I could not find my dog and so I decided to turn back and I took a shortcut where I thought the dog had gone and I ended up sliding on some uh, gravel down a steep slope into the creek it was i don't know 50 60 feet i didn't break anything but i was just cut and bruised head to toe broke my glasses and they they went down the creek and so i had no eyeglasses (laughs) (laughs) and i managed to get out of there and i get back to the car and of course the dog is asleep underneath the car and the dog had decided because it was so hot and there was no water anywhere along this hike we weren't crossing any creeks he just said the heck with this," and he went back to the car so my panic about the dog was not justified but i had no way of knowing that right so i drove into lake city (laughs) good old lake city and there happened to be a doctor on call that afternoon and he just kind of looked me over And, you know, no x-rays or anything. And he said, well, when you get back to Colorado Springs, where I was living at the time, you might want to check in with your doctor, just make sure, you know, nothing's going on. And when I saw that doctor, I mean, I was just covered with bruises. And we both agreed that I was very lucky.
2: Wow. (laughs) You know, you've told two really, actually three really harrowing stories (laughs) in a row. But we have to remind people that you have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of days mountaineering, thousands of hours, and uh, you've had a few things happen. And that can happen in Mm -hmm. the shower. That can happen driving to work. (laughs) You know, that can happen. Those sorts of things happen in life. And you've had a lifetime of mountaineering. So, really, you've done very, very well.
0: Well, yeah, especially considering, when I compare myself to a few people I've known who died in accidents, you know, that's a minority, but still, you know, that can happen. And I would have to say, you know, generally speaking, I hiked with people who really knew what they were doing and who were well trained and didn't do stupid things. And when I was alone, you know, I, I was very careful, very conservative. But I wouldn't do that now, and I wouldn't—I certainly wouldn't recommend soloing unless you had a lot of experience and you know we're certain to tell people where you were and you know so if anything went wrong people would come looking for you
2: sure you know i think it's so amazing how when you get into nature and you test yourself and you learn a skill set so that you can solo relatively safely you know because you understand how to take care of yourself in the woods and on the peaks it builds a confidence
0: yeah and but you don't want to take it for granted either because i mean I, friends I've known, the acquaintances I've known, sometimes I think, you know, you get to a skills level where you just make assumptions, right. that you can handle almost anything, and then, you know, but, you know, sometimes, I mean, if, if a boulder peels off a mountain and crushes you, there's not a whole lot you can do about that, except be aware of what time of day you're going up.
3: Yeah. Um, and, you know,
0: in Colorado Rockies, early, really early morning starts are very important in July and August because of the lightning storms, and, and, and in June and May because when the rock loosens up, and when there's snow and it's melting, and it, everything loosens up, you know, as it warms up, and then that's when you get rock fall. Boy, I have I seen some boozies.
2: Mm, I can imagine. You know, we're dealing with forces that are so much bigger than humans, so vast, and it's amazing we learn how to work inside of that environment and uh, But that's part of the appeal. It's part of the experience, you know, when you see those amazing rock slides or avalanches or uh, see other things that, you know, if you spend enough time in the wilderness, you'll see things that are so rare that people won't even believe it if you tell them.
0: Right. And you can see the evidence, of course, of, of avalanche debris from the previous winter that goes clear across a valley and up the other side yeah and um, that's quite an education in the power of avalanches. Mm. I and mean, I've seen them in the winter time as they actually happen, but I, it's it's almost even more sobering to see the debris months later, and all the broken trees you know part way up the other side of the valley.
2: Yeah, it's amazing. Some of those avalanches are are so huge, so huge. Well, Jane, I did not ask you this before we started recording but do you have an excerpt or two from the book that you would like to read?
0: Yeah. This is from the chapter called Souljourners. And in this chapter, I introduce Isabella Bird, who climbed Long's Peak in 1873 with a fur trapper by the name of Rocky Mountain Jim. And during this chapter, I introduce my climb early in my mountaineering career with Carl, And I'm very much a novice, and and we're climbing Long's Peak. And just before this passage, uh, Isabella Byrd has made the summit, and she's looking out at what was truly wilderness. We we don't have that experience today. And so I'm comparing her response and what she saw to what I experienced. And I'm looking to the east, to the you know, Long's Peak is in the Front Range, and to the east, you, you're looking out at, you know, just a sea of a prairie and sagebrush steppe, that in those days, in those years, you know, the pollution wasn't nearly as bad as it is now. And you could actually see, on a clear day, you could actually see um, the border of Kansas, mm. believe it or not. Wow. So here I am describing that. And then my history major, the history major in me, that was my undergraduate degree, comes into play a little later in the passage. To the east, beyond the forested foothills and treeless plateaus of the Front Range, the Euclidean grid of industrialized agriculture and suburbia—checkers, the grasslands, tan and pewter—along the horizon, cultivated prairie merges with sky. The possible border with Kansas, vaguely discernible in a dreamlike sheen of dust. Through the shimmering haze, the past declares itself in waves. I hear the creation story of a mountain range as glaciers grind warped earth into valleys. I hear the report of spent rifles and thunder of stampeding ghost buffalo. As soldiers follow in the wake of fur trappers and surveyors. I hear the forbidden chants of captive nomads, death-marched on to reservations. I see the saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths and Isabella's wolves before they were hunted to extinction. Coronado, greed-stricken and delusional, driving his men to madness. Covered wagons bearing my maternal ancestors from Virginia to Ohio to Kansas that faint blur on the horizon and miners dynamiting for fools' gold that glitters in their hands and dispatches them in an unjust age to cemeteries now covered in weeds and fallen tombstones. The horrors of Cripple Creek and Silverton and Central City, who died young and heartbroken, embraced in the afterlife by the high society that spurned them so, what's coming into play there is just you know my imagination and my curiosity about the past. Mm,
2: I love the history that you pull into that. That's so amazing to to kind of pull all of those things together into one line of thought. You know, looking yeah. over the ages and talking about the events that we find interesting.
0: Yeah, that that all goes back to what we were. That all goes back to what we were both saying about. Our place in time and space and the continuum oh, yeah. of the earth and hit of history. You
2: know? How long did it take when you started climbing and working through all of the challenges, the, the tragedy of the rape and of your sister's diagnosis with schizophrenia? How long did it take as you were climbing to begin to find real healing?
0: Well, I, I would say my relationship with my body had shifted by about the fourth summer because by then I was strong enough, you know, to handle a lot more than I did in the in the early summers where I was scared and exhausted and dehydrated a lot of the time. Mm-hmm.
3: Right.
0: Um And so my relationship with my body, I became more appreciative of my body and what it could do for me and how fortunate I was to even have a body. The psychological healing took a lot longer and, um, you know, that required some therapy and it also, um, I got into Zen Buddhism and meditation and that had a powerful effect on me as well because it enabled me to dwell more securely in the present. Right. And the, pa- the past just kind of falls away, and, and, you know, it's there, but it's not dominating things or taking over in moments of stress.
2: When I talk to so many wonderful people about the adventure sports that they love, it's very frequent that it comes up how much they appreciate being in the moment doing the sport And I think sports that require a lot of focus really facilitate that. It might be mountain biking Mm -hmm. or it might be um, technical rock climbing. You know, it can be a lot of different things that require that kind of extreme presence to be successful. And I think that there's something to, even just on a long hike, you know, it's not as quick moving. It may not require as much concentration, but there's something about the repetitive nature of stepping and stepping and stepping and the uh, the changing landscape around you that I think it can draw a person into the moment. So I imagine, mm-hmm. I I'm, I'm, don't want to put words in your mouth, but did you experience that even before the Buddhism, just from climbing the peaks?
0: Right. I mean, that's so true. And in fact, do you have time for me to read one little paragraph where I describe that? Yeah, we'd love it. This is from the first chapter, and it's called Solo, and I'm recently divorced, and I'm describing why I hike, and and there's lots of reasons that I give, but I'm just going to give you this one paragraph. I hike for the thrill of it, scaring myself speechless on more than one occasion that my body is up to it, legs of granite, heart and lungs, a 200-horsepower engine, driving me upward at 1,800 vertical feet per hour, 65 heartbeats per second, 3,600 per hour. On the trail, my body ceases to be an object of curiosity or despair. It has a weight to it. My footsteps land lightly while my feet feel rooted. Every step, the declaration of intimacy with the rock, the turf, the soil. The tapping of my hiking poles, synchronizing with each inhalation and exhalation, my breath distilled into the clarity of light.
2: Mm, That's beautiful. You have such a beautiful voice in your writing. It's, It's remarkable. And before we hit record, you told me just a little bit about how quickly you found a publisher, which was amazing that you did because it's so hard to find a publisher, but it's not amazing when you hear the writing. It's just so very well done.
0: Well, thank you. I appreciate you saying that. Um, keep in mind that I had been writing for many years. I I was a magazine editor three times, three different magazines, and so I wrote a lot of articles and essays, and, and I learned a lot from that. But then it was my master's degree in literature and writing late in life, well into my 50s, that enabled me to write this book. I mean, This book came out of um, my thesis for that master's degree. And um, it was just very important to me to uh, ground the story in the material world, the physicality of the of it, uh, and, and to convey that uh, to to readers.
3: Mm, yeah,
2: yeah. So the this is published by the University of Oklahoma Press, right?
0: Yes. Yeah, and I didn't quite answer my question. <laughs> I just realized, yes. Um, a friend who has published several books with them, and when he heard my idea, I described it to him on the phone one time. He said, you should query them, send them a book proposal, a chapter or two. And I, I sent it out to them, and I sent it out to a small independent publisher in uh, Utah, they weren't interested, but Oklahoma emailed back within weeks of receiving my proposal and said, you know, we we, we would like to see the manuscript. Well, I wasn't done, <laughs> and they right. didn't know that, <laughs> so I had to sit down and finish. <laughs> the second part of the book, you know, hadn't even been written yet, so it, it, it motivated me. And, um, and so I, I finished it, and I sent it in, and And, you know, they they liked it as is, but then they have outside reviewers, and I made certain that my thesis advisor, a magnificent author, um, who I learned an enormous amount from, I made certain that she would be one of the reviewers, and she had some suggestions. So I did quite a bit of revising, especially of the first part, and I'm so grateful because it was a better book for it. And I'm grateful that the publisher allowed the extra time for that, too.
2: Mm, you know that's it's so exciting when you you think about it you're putting your life story on paper and you're weaving the tale in a way that others can benefit from it and that's a gift to all of humanity you know when you do that and then to finally see it come to fruition and, and for it to be there something you can hold in your hand and other people can read and benefit from what an enriching experience congratulations
0: well thank you very much and and that was one of my motivations, was to capture a time and place that is disappearing, not just because of the passage of time, but climate change, because our forests and tundra are greatly endangered. And um, many of the things that I have grown to love about the Colorado Rockies are probably going to go extinct, not in my lifetime necessarily, but eventually. And I wanted to preserve that for future generations, so that even if they they themselves couldn't see and hear and smell what I did, they could at least get an idea of what it was like.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Well, do you have another excerpt that you uh, would like to read for us? I'm enjoying it so much.
0: Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Never ask an author to just shut up because they won't (laughs) (laughs) let me see um how about i'll read a little bit about isabella bird and why she intrigued me okay this would be that that chapter soldiers because i think she's a fascinating a fascinating character um I, I am married at this point, and I'm feeling really conflicted and kind of bored about, you know, being a housewife and so on. And so Isabel Bird kind of rescued me from that stage of my life. I have a husband who supports me, a defensible home on a mountainside, a national forest in my backyard. Yet a hazy discontent casts a pall over my days, incurable for lack of a proper diagnosis. Perhaps my maternal ancestry predisposes me to flights of unhappiness. The English are a nomadic breed. The dreary weather and insufferable class hierarchy might have driven them mad otherwise. With little to do during mud season but plot next summer's hiking misadventures. I am a housebound boyer in need of inspiration, a guidebook perhaps, to the terra incognita of my interior. Isabella Bird's fifth book, A Lady's Life in the Rocky Mountains, seldom out of print since its publication in 1879, offers a woman's perspective from an earlier time that might illuminate the source of my discontent. The cover illustration for one edition depicts a youthful redhead riding a horse in a peach gown and matching bonnet, a sugary confection bearing no resemblance to the actual Isabella My first trip to Colorado in the summer of 1954, age three, I arrived atop the portable toilet in the back of our Ford Woody, pointing at the Brown Palace Hotel and screeching, Looky, looky, as we tunneled through the tight-fisted streets of downtown Denver. On her first and only trip to Colorado in the fall of 1873, Isabella Bird took the train from Cheyenne, Wyoming, to Greeley, marveling, as she noted in her journal, at the mountains that upheave themselves above the prairie seas. Gradually, they are gaining possession of me. I can look at and feel nothing else. And I included that passage because she's possessed just as I was. And um, she found a fur trap, and when she finally made it to Estes Park, which was just a couple of uh, summer pastures for ranchers on the front pra- a range, there's hardly anyone in the area. And he took her up Longs Peak, and it was she'd been up a number of peaks on horseback, but never on foot, and it, it just about demolished her. Mm. And um, the parallel that I draw between her life and mine is just she was an invalid. When she, when, whenever she was at home in England, she was in bed most of the time. She had all kinds of ailments. But the minute she went abroad, whether it was Tibet or China or Colorado, Rockies or the California Sierras, she had this miraculous recovery because she was um, had liberated herself from the stifling gender roles of the Victorian era. And I'm really connected with that, and um, I was fascinated by how she, you know, worked through her conflicts um, successfully in some cases and not so in others. And the other thing that intrigued, intrigued me about her was her attraction to dangerous men. So there's passages in that chapter where I talk about my first reaction to Carl when I first meet him at work and her first reaction to Rocky Mountain Jim when she (laughs) comes across him and she's riding on horseback in the wilderness and she comes across his hut (laughs) and she also had a, a painful relationship with her sister whom she lost at a young age and so there's just so many parallels between our stories.
2: You know what's fascinating about that to me is that it seems like it takes something bigger than ourselves, an excitement to to generate that desire for real life, for real living, and that pulls us out of our circumstances. You know what I mean? And when as mm-hmm. you were reading about her on the train looking out and watching the mountains growing on the horizon and, and captivating her, I, I saw that And then when you mentioned that she had been an invalid, you know, back in England, and that as she traveled, it it pulled her out of that, and she yeah. she then suddenly had the energy to go on and to conquer, you know, and to experience bigger things. That's what adventure sports are about. That's why we climb mountains, isn't it? Well,
0: certainly in part, yes. I would agree with
2: that. Mm. Well, it's, it's a beautiful book. I love your writing. Um, you know, we're running a little bit low on time. We've almost used it all up. Do you have a, a funny or an inspirational or a, a challenging story that you'd like to share with us about your life experiences in the mountains?
0: Well, um, I, uh, I guess I would just say um, they're, they are teachers. If we listen and pay attention, they will teach us a lot about ourselves and our place in the world and what matters and what doesn't. And um, we can take that recognition, those realizations back into our day-to-day life if we so choose, which I did, partly because of my Zen practice, and apply what we've learned and experienced out there to our day-to-day life so that nothing becomes, nothing is mundane anymore, at least to me. Every footstep, every footstep in life matters and is to be treasured.
3: Oh,
2: well said. Yeah, well said. So, what's the best way for people to get a copy of your book?
0: Well, um it's published by University of Oklahoma Press. So, if you call their 800 number, 800-627-7377, and then press 1 for customer service, you just give them, you know, Jane Parnell Off Trail, you want to buy it. And then they'll take your order right on the phone and your address and everything.
2: So that was one eight hundred six two seven seven three seven seven. 627 7377 Is that right?
0: That's, that's right. And then you have to press 1. There's a bunch of different numbers you can press, and it's the first one, 1, okay. which will get you to, to a customer service.
2: And your book is just going out this year, correct?
0: Right. It's, it's been out for a little over a month is all.
2: How exciting! And That's it,
3: great.
0: And I am available. I mean, I'm already touring the state and doing readings, and you know, libraries, bookstores, book clubs, and and I'm available for that. I do have a Facebook page, uh, Jane Parnell, uh, and and then it's at C O L O Rockies. You know, the shorthand version of Colorado. And if you you do a Google search, you should be able to find my author's page. And and I have the event calendar there and some other things.
2: Okay. Jane Parnell, C-O-L-O Rockies.
0: Yeah, there's an at symbol in there. And I don't know if that'll take you there directly, but if you do it through a Google search, I'm sure you can find it.
2: Oh, that'd be great. So people can get more information by going there. They can order the Mm -hmm. book at... 800-627-7377, option one. And I just want to thank you for your time today. I have thoroughly enjoyed visiting with you about your experiences climbing mountains and how it transformed your life. And I really want to read your book. It sounds so delightful. So thank you for sharing that with us.
0: Well, thank you very much for calling me, and I enjoyed chatting with you.
2: Oh, you bet. And for all of our listeners out there, You know, find that transformative experience. Find a way to grow and to thrive and to build that bigger life that we're always talking about on the Adventure Sports Podcast. That's what it's really all about. And until the next show, make sure you do get out there and have some fun. First of all...